Let me pray, and then we'll look at some Scripture here. Father, thanks that You are the God and the source, the giver of every good gift. And on this weekend, Lord, especially, we do pause just to say thank You. Lord, thanks for the country that we live in and the rich heritage we have by Your good grace and Your doing. Lord, thanks for the freedoms we still enjoy today. Father, thanks for Your common graces through the earth in seasons and gladness of heart, Lord, that You give. Lord, thanks especially for Your Son, Jesus. And as we move intentionally into the Christmas season, that first Christmas song here this morning, uh, would You help us to embrace again the gift that is Your Son? Would You help us to treasure Him above all earthly treasures, Lord? Would You speak to us in a way this morning that we sense Your goodness and greatness a little bit more fully? In Jesus' name, Amen. We're not in John chapter 3 this morning, but I want to reference that before we get into Luke's Gospel. Uh, If you go into John chapter 3, you're looking at the story of uh, John the Baptist. And John's day had sort of come and and pretty much climaxed because he'd come on the national scene. He'd been baptizing in the Jordan River. And this guy from Galilee had come in amongst those other groups and been baptized. This guy named Jesus that John had pointed his disciples to and said, that's the guy. That's the one we've been waiting for. Well, not long after this, some of John's followers come to him and they've got a gripe. And they say, hey, Rabbi, that guy you baptized, well, he and his followers, they're baptizing too and more people are going to him than to you. You're playing second fiddle. You're the guy and you're playing second fiddle now to this Jesus. He's over there with his buds baptizing too. And they didn't get what John was about. They didn't understand what his role was, even though he was very clear on his role. They didn't understand the intentionality and the singular way that he said, I'm here to point to another. So he responds to his disciples and he says, Hey guys, I told you I'm not the Christ. I'm not the one the nation's been waiting for. I'm not the one for you to hang your hopes on. I'm here to point Christ out. He said, uh, He is the bridegroom. I'm His friend. So as He gets ready for His marriage, I'm happy for Him that everyone's attention is on Him, the bridegroom. He says also, He must increase. And I must decrease. He says, He's the one from heaven. And I'm the voice from earth. So John's very clear, and he's been clear all along, but his disciples didn't fully embrace that message that he said, guys, I'm here to point someone else out. I'm the friend. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm second fiddle. I'm the guys whose job it was to hang in the wings until the spotlight came on me so that I could point out the one who would follow me, the greater one. John was very clear about his mission, but his disciples weren't. I think his clarity was born of a couple things at least. One was, you remember we've already heard in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1, where we'll hang our hat this morning, that from before his birth, while John was in the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So John had a presence from God in him that would give him revelation that others wouldn't necessarily have, or clarity of that revelation. But this is the other thing, I think, that informed him so fully that when it was time for him to play his role, he was absolutely clear on it. 
I think this was the other thing. He grew up in a house of godly parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. And from the text you'll see this morning, Zacharias, his father, as delighted as he was with his son John, and he was delighted, he understood his son's role was a supportive role. He says he'll call him the prophet of the Most High, but he is not the Most High. And I'm absolutely convinced from what Zechariah will say in our text this morning, that when John grew up, Zechariah was telling him the unique, singularly unique role John had to fill, but that it was never more than a supportive role. That he was the signpost pointing to someone else. We don't want to lose track of that. In the Christmas season or any other time of year, Jesus is the thing. John got that. We need to get that as well. So if you remember bringing you up to speed, we're in Luke's Gospel. This morning we'll get into verses 57 through 80. I'm skipping, by the way, if you're keeping track, I'm skipping the text that had to do with Gabriel's annunciation, his announcement to Mary and Mary's visit to Elizabeth. We're taking John first, so we're cutting up the Scripture here a little bit, and then we'll take Jesus' birth or announcement and birth later and separately. Uh, also... Uh, some of what I'm doing this morning is, uh, um, uh, you, you hear terms like context and pretext and, and uh, springboards. Um, we're going to walk slowly through the text and, and narratives, are, uh, narratives require their own uh, handling as we go through them. So we're going to take another slow walk through the woods, as I said before, through this passage of Luke. But along the way, I'm going to highlight some things that this passage in Luke isn't specifically trying to address, but because some themes come up, I'm going to take some time out of the direct flow of the text to talk about a couple things specifically, so just to put you on warning for that. So the angel Gabriel had already shown up to old Zechariah there in the holy place offering the incense. You're going to have a son. You're to name him John, and that's where we pick up this morning, verse 57. The time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. So nine, ten months later, however long this was, brief, Elizabeth conceived and she's had the son and it says that her neighbors and her relatives are rejoicing with her just as Gabriel had said they would in verse 14. You'll have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth. Notice here, too, that Luke records that the birth of John was the Lord showing Elizabeth great mercy. Now, the context for this is that Elizabeth and Zechariah are old. And they had always hoped to have children. We know Gabriel said, God heard your prayer. He's giving you a son, a child. But they lived in decades with no answer to that prayer, no direct answer. That hope for children... And so here Luke says that God had shown her mercy in giving her this child. And no doubt it was God's mercy. The earlier text in Luke said that they had no children because Elizabeth was barren. So now God sovereignly overrides her barrenness and gives her this son John. I want to go back though to verse 25 to bring two points together here for this theme. She said there, Elizabeth said earlier in the text, the Lord has done for me in the days when He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. 
We talked about this briefly before, but I want to highlight it this morning. Every young Jewish bride's desire when she got married was to have children and specifically to have male descendants for her husband's sake. Because remember, in the Jewish way of thinking, my life and my family's line, very important, was extended into the life of the nation through my male heirs. So the biggest thing that a young Jewish bride could give to her husband was a male heir to carry on his name and his line. So you can imagine you're a young Jewish bride and you get married, Elizabeth to Zechariah, and there's no children. And the years go by and you're praying and, and you want children, you want to honor your husband, you want to produce an heir for him and, and to honor God in the nation of Israel and, and it doesn't happen. And so decades go on. Now, Elizabeth there talks about taking away my reproach from among men. So imagine you're Elizabeth, you want to produce children, and you can't. You can, you can see that there would be a great temptation for her to feel embarrassment and shame and disgrace and reproach. And she says, God's taken away my reproach from among men. Now think about this for just a minute. How much ability did Elizabeth have to produce an heir? Uh, was there something she was doing, she wasn't doing? Do you see where this goes? Was she without children because she didn't want children? Not at all. This was a testimony in her life of what God had withheld. And we know from this story it was very intentional that God had not overridden her barrenness earlier because, like so many other women in the biblical record, God always intended to bless Zechariah and Elizabeth with a special child or son of promise. Someone who would uniquely be tied into what He was doing on the earth. Part of His program. So we're going back and we're thinking about Sarah who could have no children until God overrode and gave her. And Rebecca, we'll mention a little later, um, uh, Old Testament, uh, Elkanah and Samuel's mom, Hannah, thank you, my mind's a blank. So she had this temptation to embarrassment and shame and feeling the reproach others would put on her. And, and I'm bringing this out just to say this, be very careful that you don't fall for the temptation to entertain for yourself, to hold to yourself a sense of shame or embarrassment or the reproach of others for what God has given you or what God has withheld from you. Those are things we don't control. There's many things in life we don't control. So I'm thinking of things like, here's a couple that wants children, they can't have them. God withheld children. Or, He didn't override to give this son earlier. So some in our midst today, I'll bet all of us here know, maybe some of us here, are a couple that would love to have children, and you know what? We can't have children. Infertility is a huge issue. It's a very painful issue. Imagine the temptation to feel like there's something wrong with me. God hasn't blessed. God's withheld this blessing. You know, for many others of us adults, we've grown up and we've assumed we're going to get married 
you know, we've got our plan for life. We're going to get this age and I'll meet him or I'll meet her and I'll get married. And, and we find ourselves five years, ten years, fifteen years later and we don't have our spouse. And aren't we tempted to think, what's wrong with me? And I'm embarrassed because I'm single. I feel a sense of shame. How are we also, let's say I am the guy who got married and had kids, and I'm, I'm rejoicing in what God gave. Am I tempted, or do others feel from me some incrimination or some indictment because I'm asking them or I'm wondering, what's wrong with you? You don't want children to a couple? Or what's wrong with you? You don't want to get married? You see where this goes. We don't want to embrace a shame or an embarrassment or a reproach or a sense of disgrace either for what God has given us, positive or negative, or what God has withheld, positive or negative. And we don't want to be like apparently some of Elizabeth's friends and relatives were that we would give someone else a sense of reproach based on what God has given or God has withheld. So be very careful about this with ourselves and in the lives of others and what we contribute to them as well. This could be a spouse. This could be children. This could be regular finances. This could be success as we measure it or others measure it in one field or area of life or another. So be very careful about that. We want to bless what God blesses and we don't want to end up recriminating God for what He has chosen sovereignly and lovingly to either give to us or to withhold from us or others as well. So the baby's been born, and there's great rejoicing. The sense of reproach is gone, verse 59. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. Now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're godly Jews, and this is what godly Jews do. We get that little boy, we wait eight days, and we circumcise him. And this is from Genesis 17, verses 10 through 12. This was what God commanded the descendants of Abraham to do. And circumcision was a sign of the covenant God was in with Abraham. It says during this, and we're not sure why, but apparently they were waiting to name this little boy until the circumcision. This isn't necessarily the norm in Jewish uh, families. They would usually name the boy earlier, but for whatever reason, they've waited until the circumcision. And it says they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Wouldn't you love it if your relatives are naming your child for you? Uh, But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, these are the males in the group, of course. uh, They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. They made signs. The text never says that Zechariah can't hear. So we don't know. You know, if you talk to someone, English isn't their first language, you raise your voice. They'll hear me if I'm louder, right? We don't know if, we don't know if he can hear and they just assume he's, he can't speak so he can't hear so we make signs. We don't know. But for whatever reason, they make signs to the guy who's been making signs about the name. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote his name is John. They all wondered, what's up with that? Immediately his mouth was opened. You remember Gabriel said, you didn't believe me, bud. This is the sign you asked for. This is the sign you get. You won't be able to speak. But now his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed. He spoke, blessing God. And the blessing he gave on God is the prayer, the prophecy that will follow here. 
Fear came on all their neighbors, and on all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. You can see in both the naming of John and in circumcision, you see, and by the way, in narratives, uh, what's included is important. We don't make arguments from narratives from silence, but what has God chosen to include? One of the things He's chosen to include in this narrative is this sense of obedience for Zechariah and Elizabeth. The angel says you're to name him John. They name him John. God had said, and they knew you're to circumcise your son on the eighth day, and that's exactly what they do. So you've got an example in Zechariah and Elizabeth of humble obedience of covenant faithfulness to God. When God says to do something, that's exactly what they do. They're faithful and they're obedient. So in the birth narratives, this is the consistent thing you see also. So true of Zechariah and Elizabeth. Do you remember earlier in the text when the angel tells Mary, by the way, you're going to bear the Son of God, her response is, I am God's bondservant. He can do as He sees fit. I'm here to serve and obey. Or think of shepherds obeying the angels. The angels say, hey, go and find this baby, and he's in a feeding trough. And the angel's command is obeyed by the shepherds. So one of the things you see in the narratives is just simple, appropriate obedience. And I raise this point in our culture and in our time, because guys, in our culture... And I mean in evangelical Bible-believing churches like Lion and Lamb, obedience is underrated. Severely underrated. So don't you find that you read some command in the Scripture and you might say, I'll have to think about that. Don't you find that we have a temptation to sit in judgment on God's Word and command, and Lord, hey, thanks for bringing that up. I'll think about that. I'll get back to you on that later. Oh, Lord, you know, I'm obeying you here, here, and here. This isn't such a big deal over here. Don't worry about that. I'll get back to you on this later too. Maybe. I am am struck, I am dumbfounded by interactions I have with Christians in which there's this sense of my disobedience is not such a big thing. And I just think you can't get that out of God's Word. And God calls us to faithfulness. And in this text, we see highlighted preeminently, we serve a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping, oath-keeping God. The least thing we can do is obey. The least thing we can do is obey. Obedience is underrated in our time, in our churches, and it shouldn't be. And one of the things you see brought up here in spades is Elizabeth and Zechariah, they obey. They're simply faithful to what God calls them to. Friends, if you want to be a part of what God's doing in your part of the world, they never knew what their role would be. They didn't know. And if you remember back when Luke has already described them, he says they were righteous, they were keeping all the commands of God. And that's the couple God ends up using to bring about John the Baptist to raise him up and prepare him for this introductory ministry to introduce Jesus. But for you and I, If we want to be a part of what God's doing in our spheres of influence, don't you think it's more likely that God will be using us if we're obedient? 
And if humble, faithful obedience is the norm for us, don't you think we could expect to see God using us more regularly than if we sit in judgment on God and His Word and say, I'll do this, I won't do that. I'll consider this, that lines up with my priorities for life, that doesn't, I won't. Don't you think like them there's a greater chance that you and I would have the joy, not being John the Baptist, very unique role, not being Zechariah and Elizabeth, but of God using us as He used them, that He used them in part because of their faithful obedience. That's just part of this message. It's part of these narratives. I wouldn't want to leave it there. So think about that. Luke also points up here, by the way, this was an unusual birth. The couple's old. The naming's odd. We don't get that. Zechariah's been unable to talk. And so Luke tells us that all these people there were treasuring these things up. They were laying them up in their heart. And this is the same Luke who told us in his introduction to Theophilus, hey, I've gone and I've taken eyewitness accounts. Well, let's say Luke came back three or four decades later, 30 or 40 years, John and Jesus' lifetime, plus some change. Many of these folks were still around. These folks were still there. He could go up and talk to eyewitnesses who were at John's christening, his circumcision, and say, yeah, that's what happened. And this is what Zechariah said. So there are lots of witnesses for Luke, and he points that out here. Uh, back into the text at verse 67, um, this is called, uh, Zechariah, as the text calls us a prophecy, we might also call it a prayer, um, this is called the Benedictus from the Latin, Benedictus Dominus Deus Israel, which is the first line of what Zechariah says later here in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. In Latin, which is when this prayer prophecy was named the Benedictus, that was the word for blessed. So the Benedictus, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, and I can't think in the Bible of any other family, the Scripture says, John's filled with the Spirit from the womb. Elizabeth is filled with the Spirit when Mary visits her. And Zechariah is filled with the Spirit here. So what Zechariah is saying here, is praying or prophesying here, is by the Holy Spirit. And lest I forget, um, if you look through this prayer prophecy, there's a bunch of verses on your study sheet, and those are just a, a very small fraction of the Old Testament verses that are referenced or alluded to in this prayer prophecy. Which is to say this, Zechariah knew his Bible. And when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pray and prophecy, he was doing so with God's Word. So, you know where this goes. So, read your Bible. Memorize your Bible. Meditate on your Bible. This is why God, again, could use him specifically and particularly. So, he is praying God's Word. And when you and I, if we want to be useful to God and to others, when we pray, prayers in the Bible are almost always, I'm praying God's Word, God's will, God's character. How do I know what those are? Because the Bible tells me. If I want to pray effectively, I pray God's Word. If I want to counsel others, I counsel with God's Word. So when Zechariah prays and prophesies here, this is all out of the Old Testament. There's nothing new here. 
It's all Old Testament. It filled his heart. It filled his mind. And when the Spirit comes on him here, it's the Old Testament. It's God's Word coming out in blessing and benediction. So verse 67, his father, Zechariah, he's got his voice back, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, redeemed His people, horn of salvation in the house of His servant David. Um, In these verses, you're going to see two major categories. Uh, Zechariah is going to say, God, in sending John, and the one John will introduce, God is keeping His promises to David specifically here. And then next, he's fulfilling his oaths, his covenants, and his promises throughout the Old Testament. Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, is pointing out that in Jesus' coming and in John's introductory role, God is keeping promises made over hundreds and thousands of years. That's what's going on here. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, if you remember the context here, David felt bad that he's got a house in Jerusalem and, and God doesn't. So he says to Nathan the prophet, I'm going to build God a house in Jerusalem. Would you check on that for me? And Nathan initially says, hey, great idea, build God a house. And then God speaks to Nathan, comes back to David and says, that's not what God has for you. But he does have something else for you. So in 2 Samuel 7, listen to what he says and how that ties in with what Zechariah says here this morning. God says to David, I'll appoint a place for my people Israel. That's real estate, that's geography, a place, a nation. I'll plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Boy, if you're living in Israel today, wouldn't you love to see these verses fulfilled? No more violence. I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord, Yahweh, will make you a house. I will raise up your seed, your offspring after you, your descendant, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. When Zechariah brings up that God is raising a horn of salvation and redemption out of the house of David, this is what Jews are thinking about. God is going to give us a king who's going to rule over our kingdom. We're going to be here in safety. We're going to be redeemed. That has to do with the forgiveness of sins. And John is going to introduce this king, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer to Israel. In Luke 1, uh, verse 32, we haven't read this text yet, but when Gabriel goes to Mary, he says, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Absolute clarity here that God is keeping His promise to David, specifically in David's line. From David, I'm going to bring a Savior, a Messiah, He's going to save Israel, deliver His people, save them from their sin, and provide a sanctuary for them to live in safely. In verse 68, when He uses the term, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, this phrase, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, nine times in the Old Testament, seven of these are either from David's lips, five, or they're about David, two. 
this phrase for the Jews, again, if we're not thinking in Old Testament language, we miss these things. But he not only says God's keeping the promise to David, but his phrase ties back to David's very own language and references made about David. I'm going to skip, by the way, just for the sake of time, some of the verses we on your study sheet, we won't go through all of these. At verse 68, redemption for Israel. You know, to redeem something means to, to redeem it, to buy it back. And typically that phrase in the Old Testament has to do with sin. Redeemed from the penalty due our sin. In Luke 2, verse 38, when Jesus as an infant is at the temple, Anna, the one who's worshiping God night and day there on the Temple Mount, says, Luke records, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. People had an expectancy that God is going to take care of our sin problem. Not only the violence that others do to us in that day like the Romans, but the sin problem that we have between our holy, righteous God and ourselves. It's funny, in Luke 24, 21, remember the two disciples of Jesus that were going from Jerusalem to Emmaus? And Jesus has been crucified, and in fact, He's already risen from the dead, but they don't know that. And Jesus, unrecognized by them, walks with them, and they say to Jesus, we had hoped He was the one to redeem Israel. We thought He'd take care of our sin issue. We thought He was bringing in the kingdom and we could dwell in our land in safety. We thought this was it. See, they were looking for redemption. Not only sin expiated, sin covered, the sin issue addressed, and then also deliverance from their enemy. I'll let you uh, look later. uh, Psalm 111, uh, 130. I will point out Isaiah 59, 20. A Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. Redemption tied there with the forgiveness of sin specifically. Go back earlier into Isaiah 59. God says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. So we've got a Redeemer who's going to come who's going to save us from our sin and also save us from our enemies. That's what Zechariah is bringing up here in the one his son John is going to introduce. It's uh, it's important too uh, in both Luke and Matthew's Gospel for God to keep His promise and for Israel and for you and I to know that the one that comes has to come from David. And that's why we've got genealogies. So in Luke 3, Luke gives us Mary's genealogy. And Mary's genealogy goes straight back to David through David's son, Nathan. And Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy, Joseph, Jesus' stepfather, that goes straight back to David through Solomon. And by the way, Joseph wasn't Jesus' natural father, but did you know in Jewish culture, you could banish an heir born into your family, but you could not banish an adoptive heir. So Jesus is seen to come directly, adoptively, if you will, through Joseph and uh, DNA through Mary to come specifically from David. This is the one that has the claim on David and David's line and promises. Uh, Verse 69, horn of salvation, I'll just mention, a horn means strength. A horn means power and strength. And and this horn of salvation phrase from verse 69, I just point out, I think this is on your study sheet, in 1 Samuel 2, 
And, and if you read, by the way, the life of Hannah and Samuel, you'll see that there's parallel after parallel after parallel with Luke's narrative of Jesus specifically. But remember that Hannah was a woman who couldn't have children. And she prays. And God gives her a son. And her son Samuel is the last of the Old Testament judges. Just like John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets from a woman who couldn't have children. And just like Mary has this prayer, this praise called the Magnificat, where she magnifies God her Savior, Hannah does the same thing in 1 Samuel 2. When she delivers little Samuel and goes back to introduce him to Eli, Scripture records this prayer of praise from her lips also. And she says, My heart exalts in Yahweh. My horn is exalted in the Lord. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn, the power of His anointed one. This is interesting too, that Hannah prays about God's King. There's not a king for decades. There is no king in Israel when she prays this, prophesies this. But by the Spirit, she is referencing a king and ultimately the king God would give by His choosing His Son. So there's a couple other verses there. Second Samuel and Psalms, I'll let you look those up on your own as well. Go down to verse 70. So Zechariah is quoted Old Testament to tell us Messiah is coming in, the one we will know as Jesus. Jesus is a direct fulfillment to the promises God made to David. Do you remember when we started? It's been a month or so back. When we started, we started looking at Malachi, and we said Malachi 4, uh, God would send the sunrise, the, the son of righteousness would rise, but he'd have a forerunner. And we said it had been 400 years at least since that was made. And the question arose for the Jews, would God keep a promise made 400 years earlier? And we said, well, yeah, he would. The promises to David, how old are they? They're almost a thousand years earlier. Would God keep a promise made a thousand years ago? Yeah, he would. He does. How about would God keep a promise made at this time somewhere in the context of 4,000 years ago? Would God forget? I might forget a promise I made to you last week or four days ago or four months ago. Would God forget a promise He made, say, 4,000 years ago? To this, He said, the seed of the woman. I'm going to give Eve a descendant, an heir. and He's going to crush the serpent's head 4,000 years earlier. Did God forget that one? No. No. He's good on him. So now in this section, now Zechariah is showing that God's keeping the oaths and the covenants and the multitude of promises He made to Abraham and through the prophets. So at verse 70, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who, say, who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath, he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him, God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So this goes back before promises made to David. Second Samuel 7 comes up again, very direct promises there about uh, Israel being safe and secure in the land of promise. But go back to Jeremiah 23, thinking of promises through the prophets. Verse 5 and 6, God said, 
I'll raise up for David a righteous branch. He'll reign as king. He'll deal wisely. Verse 6, in his days, Judah will be saved. Israel will dwell securely. This is just one example of many. The prophets knew God's going to send a king. And Israel will be redeemed and saved. They'll live in the land in security. If you go back in Genesis, you've got these on your study sheet. Genesis 12, 13, and 15 are all oaths and promises God made to Abraham about his heirs, his physical descendants. Now, some of these transcend physical descendants, but, but I'd want to say, and I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'm sure, God's Word means at least what it says, and it oftentimes means more than it appears to say at first, but it doesn't mean less. God's made promises, very specifically fulfilled promises in sending John and Jesus, and He's got promises yet to fulfill about a king bringing safety and security to the physical descendants of Abraham and Israel. We haven't seen it, but it's going to happen. Let me read from this. Jesus combines in Himself Israel's hope of deliverance and peace in the King of Promise and the fulfillment to Abraham to both bless his physical descendants in the land of promise as well as bless his spiritual descendants through faith. This is a theme that's really rich through the Scriptures, but Abraham is said to be our father through faith in passages in Romans and Galatians, very specifically and particularly. But he has physical descendants on the earth today as well. So Jesus is the yes from God to both of those sets of promises, if you will. Jesus is the one who can vanquish the ultimate spiritual enemy of Israel and the world, Satan, as well as those humans who follow Satan's lead in opposing God's blessing on God's people. You see that in a verse like Colossians 2.15. Now, picture this. So, Zechariah is there. Let's just say he's 60 years old. He's old. He's an old guy. Never thought he'd come to this day circumcising his own son. And he is jazzed about his son, isn't he? He's excited. So, how much has he said thus far about his son? Not a thing. Why is that? Because he gets it. That's why. He's at his son's circumcision. He's naming his son. He's delighted in his son. There's no, he's not denigrating his son. He's not looking down on his son. No, no seconds, no afterthoughts, nothing like that here. But why is he taking this long to get to his son? And why in the Benedictus? You know, there's only two verses that have to do with John. Everything else is about Jesus and God's covenant-keeping Promise-keeping faithfulness. It's because that's where you got to land, isn't it? What's John without Jesus? Nothing. What are we without God fulfilling His good oaths and word and promises? We're in trouble. At the end of the day, it's all about God moving in Christ. So even though this is John's party, we haven't talked about John yet. It's all about the one John will introduce. And he gets to his own son here at verses 76 and 77. Now he finally says, And you, child, my son, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. You remember, uh, not for just the disciples, but for Israel generally, the question was always Jesus are you going to liberate us from the Romans? Are you going to institute that 
Kingdom on earth here and now. The disciples asked that in Acts 1 again after the resurrection. Is it at this time that you're going to restore the nation? But here, he's pointing out, God through Zechariah is pointing out that this time, what God's really interested in is the forgiveness of sin. It's dealing with the root and the cause of sin first and preeminently and only then will God get around to these nationalistic promises of a place for Israel and safety from their oppressors. He says, uh, John, you're going to be called prophet of the Most High. Gabriel again, back in verse 32, had said Mary's son would be the son of the Most High. John understands from his earliest days that his is an introductory role. Uh, this church derives its name from the verse uh, John 1.29, uh, Lion and Lamb. And uh, John 1.29, uh, when they're grown up, and John's baptizing and he sees Jesus come, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The, the incarnation of Jesus to the earth had to do everything with putting away sin. Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, Hebrews says this very clearly, Jesus will come to the earth again without regard to judgment, sins taken care of. The second coming, he comes to establish his kingdom. But here in the incarnation, in his first coming, it had everything to do with redemption in the sense of taking care of our sin problem with God. By the way, if redemption related to sin isn't taken care of, you can live a thousand years in paradise and go to hell, and a thousand years of paradise won't feel like much. But if my sin's taken care of, a moment, a day, or an eternity in God's favor, now we're talking, now we've got something. Uh, verse 78 and 79. Sorry as I've broken this up quite a bit, I know, to get uh, comments in. Um, he says, because, all this is occurring because of the tender mercy of our God. Did you notice God showed mercy on Elizabeth? This is God's tender mercy. It's God's mercy that we rely on, isn't it? In sending Jesus to take care of our sins. The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us, this again, a reference right back to Malachi 4, from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's mercy is at work to bring Jesus who is light. And if you think about the frequency with which God describes Himself in Jesus, specifically related to God the Son as light, it goes on and on and on. If you go back to Numbers 24, uh, when Balaam is sort of against his will making a prophecy about God's future help to Israel, Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star, a light-giving presence. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter, a king, shall rise out of Israel. Jesus is depicted here as a star, a light in the dark firmament. In Matthew 2.2, 2, of course, the Magi from the east, we assume following, by the way, Numbers 24, come following this light-giving star to look for the one who's the light of the world. You look at John 1, uh, 9, or 6-9, through 9, John the Baptist says, I'm not the one. I bear witness to the light, but the light of the world is coming. Jesus, the light of the world. Isaiah 9.2 a great Christmas reference. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. 
you know, we talked about obedience earlier. John 1 talks about this truth that Jesus is light. When He comes into our life, we make a decision to either embrace the light, we do that through confession and repentance and obedience, or to turn from the light, and we hide in our darkness. And back to the theme of obedience, friends, when we disobey God, what we're doing is we are turning and hiding in the dark. We're saying to Jesus, I don't want your light. I don't want you to know me here. I don't want you in this part of my life. And so I turn from you and I hide myself or my chief or my pet sins in this area of darkness. But Jesus in our light means light has come. Light has come to those who sit in darkness. Moral and spiritual darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, the Gospel is described as the Gospel that brings light. Light in the knowledge, the face of God and the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the Gospel does and brings. Last verse, just describing John. It says, "...the child grew and became strong in spirit. He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." In other words, John the Baptist bursts on the scene First revelation from God in 400 years, John the Baptist. We get this brief introduction and he goes off stage again. And he waits about 30 years before it's his time to come back into the center so that he can play a supportive role, prophet of the Most High, and introduce the nation to Jesus, to the one they've been waiting for. Guys, you know, uh, in our sinful tendencies, uh, life is all about us. Uh, you know, our alienation from God is because as sinners, we are God. And, and God is our demigod. He's our servant. He's something else, but He's not our God. And our tendency is to see all of life centering around me. You're here for my benefit. Did you know that? When I'm my own God, you're here for my benefit. And I rule and reign my universe as I see fit. But you know, we'll never participate in what God's doing in the world like that, will we? And we don't get the joy and the privilege of joining the Zechariah and the Elizabeths and the John the Baptist in taking up this grand, supportive, second fiddle role of pointing others to Jesus, the Redeemer, the light who shines into our darkness. I love this passage because it reminds us with a little humility and simply a little faithful obedience. You and I won't play John's role. That was singular and unique. But God can use us to introduce others to Christ if we're faithful and obedient in the spheres of influence He set us in just as they were in their day and time. Father, would You help us to embrace the kind of humble obedience and faithfulness that your servants, Zechariah and Elizabeth and John later would have? Lord, would you help us to see that embracing your Son in every area of our life is liberating? Lord, it doesn't make us smaller. It makes us bigger. It enlarges us. Lord, when we make much of you, our world is expanded and enlarged. Lord, when we say no to sin, we've said yes to more of you and more of your life, more of your benevolence and your mercy, your goodness and your grace. Would you help us to take some clues from John and his godly parents, Lord? And would you help us such that you're able to use us in our spheres of influence to introduce others, Lord God, to your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.